Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your gift of grace to us. We thank you that we can turn our eyes to your Son. That you gave your Son, that he might come, walk upon this earth, live the perfect life, and die in our stead. We thank you that you have, by your Spirit, regenerated our hearts, giving us new desires, taking the blindfolds off of our spiritual eyes, enabling us to see all that Jesus has done, that we might turn our eyes to him. And I pray now as we open your word, and we seek to apply the principles there to our world today, we ask for wisdom, we ask for clarity, we ask that your spirit would, it, would teach us what you would have us learn. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you were not with us last week, we began a series we're calling Social Justice and the Bible, and so I encourage you to be able to go back and to listen to that message as it laid out some foundational principles uh, that we are seeking to uphold and apply throughout this series. Today, we are continuing looking at the second message in which we're calling Defining Justice. Defining justice. Well, recently, a, uh, the Wall Street Journal asked six luminaries, as they called them, to weigh in on justice. As you can imagine, the responses were quite varied. One spoke about the injustice of recipes being of European origin instead of including recipes of indigenous peoples. Another spoke about getting 72% of her film crew being composed of women or people of color. Another, an activist for the black trans community, believes we need to continue to evolve as humans and to be curious Quote, about having a fuller idea of this human experience, end quote. And there were a few others, but what the one that most uh, drew my eye was this one. This lady wrote this. She says, when I was younger, I loved stories about fairness and justice. I felt like that was the key to the rightness of the world like the Aesop's fables and the fairy tales where the cartoonishly evil king gets punished in the end. That felt like something I understood and that my child brain really loved. But then she says this, As I've aged, and maybe this happens to everyone, justice has become more elusive. It's maybe just an abstraction that I'm not even sure exists. I don't know if a human being can carry out justice. Who decides what justice is? Whose justice is it? End quote. I thought this was an amazing moment of candor. As someone who is 
awash with postmodern thought in which there are no absolute truths, she realizes that even that comes to the issue of justice. How can we even know what justice is if there's no absolute truths in this universe? But can you sense the longing in her statement? She wants to know if there actually is a thing as justice. She wants there to be an ultimate right and wrong. She wants the good guy to win and the bad guy to get what he deserves. But she doesn't know where to look. So she asks, whose justice is it? This morning, we're going to seek to answer that question. Whose justice is it? Very simply, we're going to ask and answer two questions of our own to help us come to a definition of justice, particularly defined by the Bible. We need to know what the Bible says, what God has said about justice. And so we're going to evaluate this by asking and answering two simple questions. The first question that we're going to ask this morning is, how does the social justice movement define justice? How does the social justice movement define justice? We need to know what our culture is saying justice is, and then we'll hold that up to Scripture. Social justice, as a term, was first used, as we can tell, by, in 1840 by a Sicilian priest. But the roots go back farther, as it's been traced, to 1793, to a man named William Godwin's book entitled Inquiry Concerning Political Justice. This work promoted the idea that every individual in society was entitled to share in the wealth of that society. Therefore, the rich giving of their wealth to help the poor is not a matter of charity, but a matter of justice. And you can hear how those ideas are, have come down to us today. The scholar Thomas Sowell has described this view of justice as unconstrained justice. Unconstrained justice. In this view, justice is a result so that wherever people don't get their fair share or don't have as much as others, there is injustice. Most people assume this unconstrained view of justice when they speak of social justice. When most people speak about social justice, they're talking about the inequalities that are found in society, that everyone is not getting the same amount of whatever. With this view of justice, there is a demand for equal distribution of resources. You might even think of this definition as something like socialist justice. It's seeking to create an equal outcome in society. For example, those who espouse this view of justice would say women should occupy exactly half the number of CEO positions in major corporations for women to be treated justly. Until there's an even distribution, justice has not been served. This view of justice is outcome-based. Whatever means possible... They want to achieve an equal outcome for all. Now, equality sounds good. We believe that all men are created equal, as our Constitution says, right? We, we know that 
this is an important principle that all people are created in the image of God and therefore are equal in the eyes of our Creator. But being equal before God is different than having equal outcomes in life. This kind of justice is what pushes them to people to say that kids should all get the same grade. We should manipulate things just enough so that everybody in the class gets the same grade. And if we have kids' sports, we shouldn't keep score. We should just let them kind of frolic around, and then we'll all give them a participation trophy because we don't want there to be an unequal outcome. They believe it is unjust for there to be inequities in society. Well, this idea of social justice has been defined by the scholar William Young, and I give you his definition. He says, well, often an amorphous term, it's squishy, you can't really pin it down very easily, but he says social justice has evolved to generally mean state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantage groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. Evolved to mean state redistribution. The state, the government, is pushing this redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. This is what we've been saying, is that this view of justice is looking to bring about an outcome in which everyone has the same amount of everything. Now, in our society, this outcome-based view of justice in the last few decades has been mixed with views uh, from Marxist and postmodern thought. And it's formed a realm of study and knowledge called critical theory. Called critical theory. Now, some of you may have heard of this. Some of you may have not. I am seeking to inform you about what critical theory is because it will help you understand what's going on in society around us. It'll help you to understand the things that you read in the newspaper, the things you read on your social media feed, and maybe you, even, you hear in the classroom or is sent home from your kid's classroom. So even though critical theory might sound like this uh, big top-level discipline that may be too hard to understand, I'm hoping that I can explain it to you, put the cookies on the bottom shelf, and you at least can have a basic understanding. I am not a scholar of critical theory, neither is Pastor Luke. Uh, we have simply sought to learn from those who are and are uh, disseminating it here to you uh, through our series because it's important for us to understand. Critical theory, as a phrase, is really an umbrella discipline. Uh, it's, it's, it's the the genus of thought that has spawned many variations or species underneath it. Uh, other variations such as critical gender theory or critical race theory or critical feminist theory, and the list goes on. But critical theory is the big umbrella that it kind of incorporates all of these. Today I will talk more broadly about critical theory and how it informs our culture's view of justice. Next week, Luke will address critical race theory more specifically. So let me lay out some principles of critical theory, and then I'll discuss how they shape our culture's view of justice. I want to begin by saying that critical theory is a worldview. 
just like Christianity seeks to answer the big questions of how do we get here, why are we here, what's our purpose in life, and what's the trajectory of our lives and of the world, so critical theory seeks to answer those very same questions. And as you can imagine, the answers that it gives are actually quite different from the answers Christianity gives. The Christian worldview, as you know, is formulated around four main pillars, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, restora- uh, redemption, restoration. And these four pillars are actually good, helpful, uh, a helpful grid for us to evaluate all worldviews because, you see, all worldviews have to answer the same fundamental questions. They have, to, they have to answer about who we are, about how we got here, and what this life is all about. So, in thinking about other worldviews, think about creation, first of all, the first pillar. Translated into worldview terms, creation refers to ultimate origins. Every worldview or philosophy has to start with a theory of origins. Where did it all come from? Who are we? And how did we get here? The second pillar of every worldview is the fall. That we know, biblically, is when Adam and Eve fell into sin and sin entered the world, but every worldview has a, offers a counterpart to the fall, an explanation of the source of evil and suffering. They have to explain why people do bad things. What has gone wrong with the world? Why is there warfare and conflict? The third pillar, redemption, which we know comes through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross as the answer to the fall, as the answer to the problems of this world. But every worldview and ideology seeks to offer a solution to the problems of the world. That's why they're compelling. That's why people latch onto them, because it seems to offer some solutions, some answers. They have to answer, what must be done? How can the world be made right again? How can the fall, however you define that, how can that be reversed? And finally, restoration, which we know is in the new heavens and new earth with Christ reigning upon the throne is when this world will be made right right again. But see, every ideology and worldview has to paint some sort of picture. What are we headed towards? What is is the good place that all of this work is driving us towards? What is the portrait of a good world when this redemption, however you define that, is complete? So let's look at how critical theory as a worldview answers those four questions, those four pillars. First, critical theory and creation. In one sense, contemporary critical theory does not emphasize an origin story. But as we know, with most secular non-Christian thought, it it, uh, adopts Darwinistic uh, understanding of origins. And my guess is that if you pressed those who espouse critical theory, they would answer some mix of views between Marx and Darwin uh, that, again, had similar understanding and pushing God out of the picture and that matter simply creates itself. They would say that people are just evolved creatures and part of the spirit of the world. But it's interesting that the origin story is not crucial to critical theory. They don't emphasize where we came from. They don't emphasize it. In fact, they emphasize the fall. They seem to pick up at what's wrong in the world, and that is their resounding cry. And that leads us to the second pillar, which is critical theory and the fall. Critical theory answers the question, what's wrong with the world, with this, by saying, what's wrong is the inequity that exists 
for oppressed classes of people. Inequity for oppressed classes of people. Well, let's try to understand what that means. We understand oppression. The Bible talks about oppression. We, we are all against oppression. What do they mean when they talk about oppression in classes of people? Well, first, let's talk about how they identify humanity, okay? They, critical theory puts all of humanity into a binary, oddly enough, into, uh, into two groups, two groups. And so the world, as we exist today, or is a conglomerate of oppressors and victims. Everyone falls into one of two camps, either an oppressor or the oppressed, oppressor or a victim of the oppressed. And if you are part of the majority, those who set the norms or values for a society, then you are classified as an oppressor in this worldview. If you are part of the minority, then you are a victim of the oppressor class. So even in this worldview, they would say that males are the oppressors and females are the oppressed, even though there may actually be, majority-wise, more females in society. But because males set the norms and values for society, they're in the oppressor class and females are in the oppressed class. Now, it's important to realize that these ideas of putting people in oppressed and oppressor groups has its roots in Marxism. But while Marx, for those of you that can remember your uh, philosophy class, uh, viewed the world through economic realities exclusively, critical theory has taken the social binary of Marxism, which was the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and broadened it into, into simply oppressors and the oppressed in all sorts of categories in, the, in society. So it's not just an economic class system. In, in critical theory, people have their identity, get this, not as individuals, but as part of their societal group. Groups are determined and you're kind of wondering, what, what group am I in? Well, groups are determined by any number of factors, including but not limited to, because the list can really go on infinitum, ethnicity, economic class, sexual preference, gender, or religion. These different characteristics will put you in one class or another. And therefore, this is the point I want you to see this morning, is that the fundamental view of society, of humanity, through the lens of critical worldview, is a splintered view. Christianity sees humanity as all made in the image of God, and therefore there's a fundamental unity that groups everybody together. But, but under critical theory, there's fundamentally a splintering of humanity, in which people are not, there's no cohesive whole, there's nothing that binds everybody together, but there's something that pushes us all apart. Differences are accentuated. Groups are polarized. So we have these groups, and they're, they're spread out all throughout society. That's where we find our identities. But again, we're talking about the fall, critical theory in the fall. There's, with the fall, there comes guilt. There comes a sin. There comes something that has been done. So it seeks to explain the problems in society, the issues that we see that are, that are, that are wrong as inequities. That through the oppression 
and power, they have created these problems. And see, this grid of seeing everybody as either oppressor or oppressed is the only moral grid that critical theory is able to see. It's the only thing that highlights something as wrong or something as good. Critical theory thus puts all humanity into the binary of oppressor and oppressed. It teaches that males oppress women, whites oppress blacks and other peoples of color, heterosexuals oppress LGBTQ plus individuals, the rich oppress the poor, and the, and the list goes on. This is why we've been told that males are toxic, whites are racist, and heterosexuals are homophobic. Because in this worldview, if you're in the oppressor class, you are guilty of the sin of oppression. It doesn't matter what you've done, because remember, your identity is not based upon you as an individual, but, a, but with your identification with a group. Again, the oral, only moral grid critical theory has is that of power. Whatever position is dominant, held by the majority, or by those in positions of power, are the oppressors and are guilty of disparaging the other positions. And so, critical theory teaches that all the problems in the world are explainable by oppression through unjust social systems. Everything from issues in the environment to issues that we see in our schools to issues that we see even in our homes has something to do with oppression at some level. All unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or to differences in culture, or to differences in human abilities, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. Therefore, what is the fall in critical theory in this worldview? Well, people are guilty by their identification with an oppressor class. Their guilt is established not by individual actions, but by association. As I've mentioned, for example, all pe white people are racist even if they have not committed any racist actions because individual actions are irrelevant. This also means that those who are in the oppressed groups aren't guilty. Only those who are oppressors are guilty of oppression, but those who are in the oppressed groups aren't guilty. They're just victims. So that's the fall. That's how critical theory sees what's wrong with the world. Let's look at redemption, critical theory and redemption. How does critical theory resolve or propose resolving this? Well, fundamentally, critical theory argues that rev revolution is necessary for there to be salvation or redemption. The oppressed groups must be set free from their oppressors. This, too, mirrors Karl Marx's teachings on revolution, again, his on economics, but this applying to all sorts of groups. Because, you see, only revolution that topples those who hold the power will bring true, lasting change and fix society. Critical theory says that those in oppressor groups are blinded by their power. Okay? So males are blinded by their power. Whites are blinded by their power. Able-bodied people are blinded by their power. Western people are blinded, blinded by their colonial power. There's whatever oppressor group you're in, you're blinded by the power that you have in that oppressor group. And so there's two implications by that, uh, from that. 
because they're blinded by their power, number one, everything they say, whether arguments or rationality or even religious doctrine, is used to perpetuate their power. Is used to perpetuate their power. So even me giving a critique of critical theory today is me trying to uphold my power as a white male. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says. It's all about, it's all through the lens of power. And so every statement, every word is only determined through that lens. And it puts reasoned debate out the door. Reasoned debate and freedom of speech is therefore out because if you have freedom of speech, it only gives unjust discourses airtime. And we can't allow that to happen. That's heresy. And so the dominant discourses, the dominant narratives being told, which, and by which they mean logic, yes, just fundamental logic, arguments, doctrine, and messages used by the powerful who they deem those in the oppressor group, their statements, their rationality, their arguments must be shut down. This means speech must be controlled. And thus you get what many are calling today cancel culture. I heard that term where people get canceled because of things that they're saying that doesn't fit this ideology. It's because those people in, the, in those oppressor groups are simply blinded. And so we've got to shut them down. The second implication from people being, the oppressors being blinded by their power is that truth in this world and truth about society is not found among the powerful. You can't look to uh, a white male to find or to hear about what is true in this life or in this universe. Truth is only found among the marginalized and the oppressed. And the more categories of oppression an individual possesses, the greater access to truth he or she has. For example, a black transgender female has greater knowledge of the truth than a white female does because there's greater categories of oppression with a black transgender female than with the white female. And you know how that list goes on. The more that you can tack in oppressed groups, the greater we need to give them rise and prominence and power because they can see what is right in this society better than anybody else can. Therefore, redemption in the worldview of critical theory is liberation for the oppressed. Liberation that comes through revolution. Ideally, oppressors would apologize, lay down their power, slowly back away, and hand power over to the oppressed. And this is why you see many people kneeling and bowing and removing themselves, resigning from places. But critical theory says that's not going to happen. People love their power too much. They're not going to slowly back away and give it up. So therefore, the state needs to step in. We must force this revolution. Finally, critical theory and restoration. We must ask the question, what's the portrait, the end goal that they're striving for? And in one sense, there's, I believe, from, from what I've read, there's a, there's a hypothetical utopia. 
there, there's a sense in which they talk about when all these power structures will be reversed and the powerful will be torn down and the oppressed will be lifted up and, uh, and that'll all be, be made right. But there's a sense in which as soon as all that's made right, their movement dies. And therefore, there's a reality in which they must continue to keep on fighting. They must continue to be pushing revolution. And if they, they get it in one area, then they just move to another area. And they keep hunting it out until, so they can keep on going. And so in one sense, the revolution's never finished. I think they talk about a utopia. I don't know if they actually believe it will happen. With Marx, there was the utopia of communism, at least in his thought. But with critical theory, there is talk of a utopia, I think, that just finds its life in struggle, perpetual struggle. So, thank you for hanging on. I know these ideas are not the easiest things to think about. But let's come back to our main question. How does the social justice movement define justice? Well, based upon our analysis of their worldview, justice is only achieved through an unending process of revolution, whereby those deemed disadvantaged must receive power from the advantaged. This justice must be forced because people won't give up their power voluntarily. And thus, in the name of justice today, people are fired, they're shut down, removed from office, and in some cases, again, in the name of justice, are beaten by mobs. And we don't have time to do a full critique of, of critical theory from a Christian worldview. I've given you some hints towards that already, but needless to say, this worldview directly contradicts the Christian, Christian worldview. There is no compatibility between critical theory and Christianity. Sure, there might be some things that critical theory might point out that we could agree with at a very surface level, but deep down, they are two competing worldviews. They have fundamental beliefs about the world, beliefs about sin, beliefs about salvation. And when Christianity is merged with critical theory, it produces a false gospel, a damning gospel, a gospel that does not point to the life-giving blood of Christ, but instead a salvation of works in which the oppressed must simply be on the treadmill of, of trying to earn their righteousness. So, that is how our social justice movement defines justice. Let's turn then and look at how does the Bible define justice? How does the Bible define justice? We're going to spend our time in the Old Testament this morning, and the reason for this is that the most explicit statements about justice are found there in the Old Testament. But the biblical witness is consistent from the old to the new, but due to our limited time, we're just going to spend time in the Old Testament. Now you'll remember that the quote that I read you at the beginning of this message, the lady asked the question, whose justice is it? How do we know what justice is? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is very clear, and that is it's God's justice that sets the standard for this world. So first, let's look at the justice and the character of God. Any definition of justice in God's universe must begin with the character of God, the one who, who created and made this whole place we call the world. He is judge of all the earth who can only do, do right, as Abraham confessed in Genesis 18, 25. God sits upon his sovereign throne above 
all rule and authority, above the, this entire mass of humanity. And the Bible is clear that justice and righteousness are the undergirding principles of that reign. Everything that he does as the sovereign creator and ruler is out of justice and righteousness. Psalm 84, 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's the undergirding principles of his reign. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Simply put, Justice is God's nature. Isaiah 30, verse 18, for the Lord is a God of justice. Fundamental to who God is, is he is a God of justice. So as we seek to define justice, we must begin with the character of God and understand that he sets the standard for this. But secondly, let's look at justice in God's people. Justice in God's people, because God is a God of justice, well, how did he want his people, Israel, to live? How did he want them to have a just society? Was it to redistribute uh, all the resources so that everybody had an equal amount? Or was it something else? I want you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 19. You know it's good when you're going to be turning to Leviticus. Leviticus 19. Here in chapter 19, we get one of the most often quoted Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament here in this chapter. And that's where I want to direct your attention first is Leviticus 19, look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you know, is well repeated throughout the New Testament and is a foundation for the ethics that's found there on how we should treat people. As the Apostle Paul picked up, Jesus identified this as the second greatest commandment. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This statement here in verse 18 really is a fundamental thesis for the verses that we get through verses 9 through 18 on how the Israelites should be treating one another. How should they be loving one another? And here we get some specific examples. Now, as we go through these, I'm going to highlight some ways that God set up the Israelite society, and I believe there are direct applications to us today. But notice I said applications. This was written to Israel, the covenant community of God's chosen people, um, back at Mount Sinai. But there is application for us today because this reflects the heart of God as all scripture is profitable. So let's look at how God lays out loving our neighbor here in these few verses. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, 
Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I and the Lord your God. Here in these verses, 9 and 10, we see there, there should be love with possessions. That everything that we have, all the monetary resources we have are not to be spent just on ourselves, but we're to intentionally leave some left over so that we can be generous and give to those who are in need. Back then, it was not reaping to the edge of your fields. My guess is no one here has fields to reap that you can leave for the poor in our community. And so the application needs to be different, but the point is the same. We love with our possessions, and love requires generosity. Look in verse 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Here we see that there's to be love with words. That not only, he says, you shall not steal, but you also don't deal falsely. You don't lie to one another. Love requires truthfulness in our relationships. If we're to love others as ourselves, we speak truthfully and honestly because God is the Lord. Look at verses 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Here simply he's saying you shall love with action. That love requires uh, treating others rightly and kindly. You don't oppress those, uh, your neighbor or rob them. You don't, if you, someone does a job for you, you don't hold on to their wages. He says, until, uh, uh, let those wages remain with you all night until the morning. This was a, a time where people depended on the, the wages that they earned each day to keep their family uh, surviving. Treat one another well and kindly, even those who cannot hear and those who cannot see. Verses 15 and 16, he goes on. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. We're going to spend, look at these verses a little closely in, a, in a, just a second, but we can see just broadly that love requires impartiality. We're not supposed to favor the poor or the rich. This is, takes place in the courtroom, but is to be applied in all of life as well. But then look at the last section in verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This last two verses talking about love in our attitudes, that in our hearts we should not have a grudge against other people. Love is required in both heart and action. Now, verses 15 and 16 is where I want us to focus our attention just briefly because this is where a statement of biblical justice is given very clearly. He says that justice has to do with impartiality. Biblical justice in society describes a process by which every person is equal under the law. Everyone gets a fair hearing, no matter what status you are, no matter what your outward appearance, you have a fair hearing under the law. No favoritism is shown. No preference is shown toward the rich or the poor. 
no bribes, no backroom deals, no corruption. And so this describes a right process of upholding the law, not a redistribution of resources to produce a desired outcome. This describes a right process of upholding the law, not a redistribution of resources to produce a desired outcome. The problem here is not poor and rich. The problem is treating the poor and rich differently. Justice, biblically defined, is blind, which is why on many of our courthouses there's a statue of Lady Liberty, and Lady Liberty has a blindfold on. That was designed in order to illustrate this reality that before the law, justice doesn't care what you look like, what status of society that you're in, because we will treat you equally under the law. Now, the rest of the Old Testament upholds this very definition. You could say, oh, that was, that was just something God said in one place. Well, no, it's, it's repeated over and over again that justice is equal treatment and a fair process, not an achieved result. Flip back a to Exodus chapter 23. 23 verses, now we start in verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Notice the biblical balance here. Like what's typically highlighted in our world today is the oppression of the rich against the poor and that the Bible is concerned about that. But notice it goes the other way, too, that you should not be partial to a poor man. The quote-unquote oppressed, you can't side with them in such a way to, to show favorites to him either. God is clear that we, there's to be no favoritism one way or the other. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This definition continues. Moses says, I charged your judges at that time. Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien, meaning the, the outsider, the stranger, the immigrant who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. You shall not be partial, he says. Moses says it again in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Does that mean that they redistribute resources to everyone within their jurisdiction? No. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. Not to pervert justice, not giving preference, giving equal treatment. One more verse for you to see this in 2 Chronicles 19, verses 
6 through 7. This is where Jehoshaphat is speaking to the judges in the land, and he says, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. You see, through all of this underlies the character of God. Leviticus 19, each of those statements that we looked at, he ends with, I am the Lord, for I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And here, there's this emphasis that that God is the one who's putting you in your land, who's setting you up as judges. You must uphold the character of God, which is reflected in the law of God. The character of God is at stake in how justice is served and upheld. And so they must fear the Lord so that they don't fear those who have power and influence, but they must treat everyone equally. God desired that justice be upheld in ancient Israel. It's clear. They were to walk closely with the Lord. And again, I, I, I emphasize this, that, it re, that justice required walking closely with God. It wasn't an abstract concept that, oh, humans should just be able to figure out you, don't, you treat each other rightly. Because, see, that's what many in the Enlightenment tried to explain, that justice and all these great values of the American experiment could be figured out by human reason alone, and therefore we could just stand upon these things. But what we're finding out is that you, if you don't base these things upon the character of God and upon the Scriptures, then you can ease, the foundations easily shift and the definitions get changed. Well, did Israel live according to this? Were they just? Was there a just society in Israel? No. They departed from the Lord first and foremost. They didn't walk closely with God and yet pervert justice. They, they rejected the Lord. They did not walk closely with him. And therefore, as a result, they perverted justice. They took advantage of others. They committed great injustices. And it was the role of the prophets to speak out against those injustices. I want us to see just two passages that show that. This morning, Isaiah chapter 1. You can turn there. Isaiah chapter 1. This book, he opens up with a major indictment against God's people. And he says, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Well, God goes on to describe their sins and call for repentance. And I want you to see this intermixing of calling for repentance, what sins he calls them to repent of, starting in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
He goes on, verse 21, how the, un, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. And look, look at this, verse 23, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. You can stop right there. You can see in this that they had begun committing great injustices, were particularly the most vulnerable in society, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow, who had no safety net other than their, their neighbors were to be able to go and find justice but they were being treated wrongly. They'd go to the courts, they'd go to those in charge, and they wouldn't receive justice. They, the judges would side with the rich, and therefore the destitute were left more destitute, and God calls them out on that, which is why he says that they should correct oppression and seek justice. You should course correct. Follow me, and then see justice in society. But as it were, they ignored justice. This is also the case in the book of Micah. You can turn to the, the minor prophet Micah, particularly Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Again, as we see the condemnation of Israel's prophets against the sins of Israel, we're getting clarity on what injustices, what justice and injustice means. Here in chapter 6, God brings an indictment against his people. It's a covenant lawsuit. Verse 1, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. But then in verses 6 through 8, we have someone who asks the question of how they might come before the Lord. I believe that this very well could be the king, the representative of the people, who asks how he might approach God. Look in verse 6 and 7. He asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He, you see, he's, he's talking about extreme measures, extreme gifts, and in, in one sense, a, a lot of money, thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of oil. This is someone who has lots of money, wants to throw everything he can into these religious rituals in order to try to appease the Lord, against the, the, appease the anger that he has against Israel. But, but more ritual is not what God wants. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He says, you should know what good you ought to do. You should know because you have the law. If you followed the law that God revealed from on high, you would know what good to do. And therefore, this is a summary of the law that God has given. They are to do justice, he says. Do justice. Now, this is not, there's some context to this statement of doing justice. He's documented the injustices in this book. 
Go, turn back to chapter 3 just to see a few examples of this. Actually, chapter 2. Let's work, look at verses 1 and 2. Micah writes, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in, the, in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. You see, these are those, the rich and the powerful, and they're able to do what they want and take what they want. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a cauldron, like flesh in a cauldron. He, he's saying that those who are the rulers and the judges, those who are supposed to adjudicate all the issues in the land, are treating the people so poorly, they're essentially cannibalizing the people of Israel. Their injustices are rising to the heavens. He goes on, look at verse, uh, let's flip, flip to verse 9. He says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, It is not the Lord, is not the Lord in the midst of us. No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Friends, this describes the injustice of Israel, that they were allowing money to drive how they treated people, and they treated them wickedly. Therefore, treating, therefore, justice, again, our definition is treating people rightly, equal treatment, as they have opportunity. So Micah 6.8, do justice. They were to treat people well. We, too, are to treat people well. Treat them as they deserve, as we have opportunity. And never trying to cheat, never trying to do things just for money or treating people poorly for money. But he says also to love kindness. Israel was to love doing good to others, was care for the needs around us. But notice it's all based upon this idea of walking humbly with God. Relationship with the Lord is the key foundation to doing justice rightly. This is what God cared most about. You don't need to bring your offerings, all these sacrifices, all these things. I care most about your heart before me. Are you walking with me humbly? On this passage, Micah 6, 8, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert say in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? They say this. As we've seen time after time in these social justice passages, the classic form of injustice is siding with the rich against the poor because the former will pay you for it, and the latter can do nothing to stop you. The rich, for Micah and the prophets in general, tended to be greedy bribers who took land by force, spoke, uh, spoke to get their way, and oppressed the poor to increase their wealth. This is the sort of rich person that the Lord disdains. So, we've seen from the scriptures that, that justice is equal treatment under the law. It's not trying to redistribute what is found in society. It's giving everyone a fair adjudication. 
This justice was to flow out of their love for one another. As we saw in Leviticus, love for people was to characterize Israelite society. So what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? Let me just give you a few examples. This means that it is unjust for a rich person to receive better treatment from our justice system than a poor person, or a white person over a black person, or a man over a woman. But it is not unjust for some people to have more money than others. We should have compassionate hearts toward the poor, but there is not a biblical requirement to spread wealth to all the citizens of a country. It is unjust for a person to be blocked from an opportunity, say a job, because of her gender, ethnicity, age, or some other physical attribute. But it is not unjust for some people to have more opportunities than another. We should have compassionate hearts towards those who are not as advantaged as us. But there is no biblical requirement to make everyone's life circumstances and opportunities equal. Each person must simply seek to be faithful in whatever position they find themselves in, whether they are like Joseph in prison in Egypt or whether they are like Moses in Egypt in the courts of Pharaoh. Friends, there are a thousand other ways we could apply these principles. That it's not an equal distribution, but it's simply a fair process. And because of time, I cannot go into them all. But it's God's justice that must prevail. We must think rightly, think biblically about what justice means. Now, there are many questions I did not address here about how are we supposed to care for the poor of society? How do individuals do that? How does the church do that? I'm hoping those questions and more will be addressed in the final message of the series by Pastor Luke. I just uh, shaped the form of his message. No. <laughs> Well, as we, as we finish this morning, I want us, and we prepare to take communion together. I know it's where we want to finish this morning. I want us to pull back and consider what God's justice means for each of us individually. We said that God is judge of all the earth. He judges and rules rightly. He must punish every wrong. And he will make every wrong right. He will not allow any evil perpetrators to get off the hook. Nothing escapes the just justice of God. He is the righteous judge. And because of that, that gives us hope. We know that we might be treated unjustly in this life. And we know that we might go to the grave without our injustices being rectified. But we know there's an ultimate court of justice in which God will make every wrong right again. We know that the utopia, the, the, the perfect place is not going to be found here on this earth in this life, but when Christ must return and set up his kingdom, and that is when everything will be made right in the new heavens and the new earth, in Christ's kingdom. This gives us hope. But the fact that nothing escapes the justice of God should give each and every person a reason to pause. Because, you see, he knows everything that you and I have done. He knows all the thoughts that we've had. He knows all the actions that we've done, all the words that we've spoken, even if no one else has. He knows our hearts, and he knows that they are desperately wicked. Friends, before the bar of God's justice, we all stand guilty. None escape. No one has lived a good enough life. No one has lived holy as God is holy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The wrath of God rightly hangs over every single person's head for our rebellion and unbelief. 
We deserve to be punished for our sins. His justice, again, we've been talking about justice, his justice requires it. If he let us walk into heaven without dealing with our sin, he would be an unrighteous judge, just like a judge who lets a murderer back on the streets. God cannot do it. He must deal with our sin. And so before God's justice, we all stand guilty. We all have a justice problem. And it's not the inequities in the society. It's not the injustices we receive. Although that is a problem, our greatest justice problem is that if God were to treat us justly, he would send us all to hell forever. But friends, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That every single sinner can come to Jesus and be washed by the blood of Christ and go home a forgiven sinner. All guilt is done away with. All condemnation done away with. And to know that you are righteous, you are counted righteous in Christ. All we must do is confess our sin, repent of our sin, and trust in Jesus as our only hope, as our only hope to be righteous. He bore the wrath on our behalf. Jesus died upon the cross. He was crucified so that he might bear the wrath of God that was deserving for you. It came down upon Christ, his own son, so that the justice would be satisfied. So that, so that God's justice would no longer have to punish you, but he could welcome you into his presence forever because he dealt with your sin. He didn't just ignore it. He dealt with it on the cross. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No great treadmill of works that we have to do in order to gain approval, in order to make us feel right before God or before others. We simply confess Jesus, we repent of our sin, and we're forgiven. And guilt is gone forever and ever and ever. You see, we have a God who forgives and justifies the ungodly. He forgives sinners like you and me. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20 says this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And it's this forgiveness that we celebrate together. I encourage you to take out their communion elements. Begin opening that cup so we might partake of that together. See, the church is a forgiving community. We all stand on equal footing before the cross. And while the world foments division, we celebrate and maintain our unity in Christ. A unity that was purchased by the blood of Christ. And so as we partake of the cup and of the bread together, we are celebrating that unity that we have through Christ. Let's take these two elements together. Let me close in a word of prayer. Oh God, we praise your name that you are the God of justice, that you are the foundation of this universe. Father, I pray that you would please give us hearts that align with your word. Help us to 
recognize the free offer of the gospel, that we can stand forgiven, your justice satisfied because of Christ. And then may we seek to see justice in our world, a justice that reflects your priorities and your character. And may we love all those around us as ourselves. We ask for your spirit to help us do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, you are dismissed. May God bless you.